This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. On today's show, we are talking with the very knowledgeable Dr. Brett Deakin from the University of Melbourne. Brett is an Associate Professor of Psychology and Convener of the Clinical Psychology Program at the University of Melbourne. He received his PhD in Clinical Psychology at Northern Illinois University in the US and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the Mayo Clinic under the mentorship of Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz. Since then, he has worked as an academic for 15 years and a full-time private practitioner for five. His primary area of expertise is exposure therapy for anxiety and OCD. He is the co-author of Exposure Therapy for Anxiety, Principles and Practice, and he has published extensively on therapist barriers to exposure therapy and strategies for overcoming them. In part one of this episode, you'll hear us talking to Brett about the concept of faith. How much faith do we actually have in our clients to experience distress? You'll hear Brett talk about the difference between coping with distress and tolerating distress, as well as the many dangers of safety behaviours. Let's get started. Today we have the wonderful Associate Professor Brett Deakin joining us from the University of Melbourne. He's also the clinical convener of the Master of Clinical Psychology program. We are going to cover a couple of interesting topics today. We're going to be talking about his research into the use of safety behaviours when it comes to exposures and he's going to tell us all about what they actually are for those that don't know what they are. And we're also going to be delving into a very interesting subject on why sometimes clinicians struggle to jump into exposures with their clients. It's definitely a thing. And we were talking about this before where in supervision, I'm sure Tori can attest to this too, where clinicians just feel a little bit nervous about dipping their toes into certain exposures, especially with their clients. So it'd be interesting to see what the research is about that and his insights into what might be going on. All right, let's get into it. So. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about safety behaviours and what they actually are for those that might not know what they are? Safety behaviour is any action that a person takes in order to prevent a a feared outcome from happening and or to reduce the distress associated with it. You know, we all use safety behaviours all the time. Brushing our teeth is a safety behaviour, you know, to reduce tooth decay and wearing a seatbelt is a safety behaviour when we're driving to protect ourselves in the event of an accident. And it's just a, a... natural thing to do to engage in a safety behavior when you're concerned about something bad happening. And of course, the problem we run into in the clinic is clients are using safety behaviors that are not sort of necessary or helpful in actually mitigating threat and can have the effect of worsening their life or even making their anxiety problem worse. In terms of how that applies to compulsions, in essence, the compulsion could be conceptualized as a safety behavior if we were to illustrate what it might look like for someone with OCD, right? So in terms of some of the research that has been coming out, you've been looking at the difference between when safety behaviours are available versus when they're actually used. 
Can you tell us a little bit about some of those findings? Yes, I've always found this to be a fascinating topic. And for me, the most sort of obvious real world example would be what happens psychologically when someone is given a a fast acting benzodiazepine medication like Valium or Xanax by their doctor, and they're told, carry this around with you in case you need to take it. And often people carry the pill with them, but don't actually take it, but find it very important to have the pill with them. And one perspective might be, well, if they're not actually taking it, then they're still doing the task themselves and they didn't use the pill to aid them. So they might feel a sense of self-efficacy in completing the task. But actually, psychologically, what happens is it's the availability of the pill, of the safety aid. That's the problematic part. And it doesn't matter whether or not people actually ingest the pill. What matters is their knowledge that it's there in case they need it. And if you take it away, then facing a feared situation is a whole different level of difficulty because you don't have that safety aid to rescue you if you need it. So it's almost like having a security blanket. Yes, which is actually unhelpful, even though people might feel like it gives them a sense of safety and reassurance, but it actually provides an excuse for why nothing bad happened and why they were able to complete a task. And that's, that's this idea that I did it because of the power of the safety aid. Another interesting thing is that Having a safety aid available, like let's say uh, a little container of hand sanitizer that you might carry around in your pocket if you are worried about contamination, the act of carrying that safety aid is a reminder of the danger you fear. And it actually keeps the feared outcome alive in your mind. And it would be expected to actually make you, ironically, more anxious than if you didn't have it with you. And the reason why you need to know if it's time to use it. How do you know if it's time to use it? Well, you have to scan for threat and determine whether or not you've been contaminated. And it actually keeps your mind focused on your fear. That is a really interesting idea. That idea that the very thing that you're keeping with you to keep you feeling safe is, in fact, elevating your sense of anxiety, because I bet most people don't know that. It's paradoxical. It's the opposite of what you would expect. And, and yes, so it's, it's not intuitive. I'm sure you're right that most people don't know that. But that's where we come in to, to help people understand the uh, sometimes unintended consequences of the actions that they're using to, to stay safe in feared situations. I know a lot of my clients would often try to negotiate. And it's very much part of the dialogue in exposure. It's this idea when it becomes a negotiation sometimes when you're working with your client and talking about setting up exposure tasks and all that sort of stuff and then getting into it in session and then having them repeat it at home and all the rest of it. You can absolutely hear the OCD talking in a sense of, oh, no, but if I just carry this around, it'll be okay or it'll make me feel better and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, it is a counterintuitive thing. And as therapists, I think we often are like, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen really if it's just in their pocket and they're not using it and all the rest of it? And it's really fascinating and it is counterintuitive to know that actually it does, just the thought of it perpetuates the fear and keeps that narrative alive. So it's going to be an interesting dialogue in session when we can say, well, actually there's research saying X, Y, and Z. I think we see in people just with generalised anxiety too. I mean, I think about some of the clients that I work with and the way that they move through the world, constantly scanning for threat and that sort of, you know, which in the OCD space we'd 
you know, we conceptualize as a mental compulsion, but, you know, all of the ways that they sort of speak to themselves about people, the way that people kind of puff themselves up, all of these things to sort of navigate social anxiety, you know, it's a really, really common process for people to utilize, isn't it? And I can imagine would be really hard to let go of as well. I think you make really good points, both of you. And it is a negotiation when you're working with a a client around stripping away their safety behaviors. And my approach to therapy is we really want to get as quickly as reasonably possible to the point where the person is not using any safety behaviors of any kind. Because if there's even one there, that's all it takes for them to not have an opportunity to really learn that feared situations are safe and tolerable. A debate that was happening in the field for a while is, should we actually allow or even encourage clients to use safety behaviors, at least in the initial part of exposure to sort of take the edge off and make it more tolerable? Or should we do the opposite and try to encourage clients to experience high anxiety during sessions and make therapy more intensive while trying to uh, get people to the point where they're not engaging in any safety behaviors? And I think Ultimately, a lot of that comes down to how much faith do we have that our anxious clients are able to tolerate distress. And that's where it becomes really tempting for them to use safety behaviors. It becomes really tempting for psychologists to encourage them to use safety behaviors. But sort of dovetailing with some of our research, ultimately, I think that comes down to this belief that anxious clients are fragile and need to be able to use safety behaviors to be okay. And I don't think that's the case because. I don't think that's the case. I'm happy to deliver exposure intensively and I reckon that it works better. That's what the research shows. That is so interesting because it really, when I read that and hearing you speak about it too, it really um, takes me back to the interview we did with Ali Leibowitz in his work on helping parents reduce family accommodation and one of his caveats in treatment, one of his principles of the treatment program is having this mac and cheese statement of like parents really cheerleading their children into believing their ability to cope with the distress. And I think that's something we can take away as therapists as well in a sense that while we're not that person's parent, we are a cheerleader for them and it's up to us to be bigger, stronger, wiser and kind in our approach to advocating for our client and going, this is really challenging right now, but I believe in your ability to be able to cope with this situation. And I think that's a really strong message we can send to our clients rather than tiptoeing around it and getting pulled into the anxiety because it's so easy to get caught up in it and to start doubting as well our client's ability of can they or can't they because of what they're telling us. Yeah, no, this is a great conversation. I That is the attitude you want to have toward your clients, you know, faith in their capacity to tolerate the stress and I must confess a bit of an aversion to the word cope, because to me, it conjures this idea that what the person is experiencing is just really awful and aversive. And, you know, they need to be able to cope with it the way that you need to be able to cope with being stuck in traffic. Is that really something to be coped with or just something to be tolerated? And I want to throw out an analogy here that I find really useful in talking about exposure. And that would be the idea of a person who's a bit unfit, getting a gym membership and going to the gym to try to get more fit and meet with a personal trainer and develop an exercise program and start to work out. That personal trainer, if they're any good, they're going to meet the client where they are in terms of where to begin. 
an exercise program, but they are going to have faith that the client has the capacity to push themselves and that the discomfort and the sweatiness and the soreness, it's going to be tolerable. And it's not something to be coped with. It's just part of the experience of working out. You have to exert yourself and, and it requires a lot of effort. But can you imagine a personal trainer who had the mindset of the sort of concerned exposure therapist who worries that their client might not have the capacity to tolerate the distress that the task is going to evoke. And that would be a personal trainer encouraging the client to, you know, just sort of walk slowly on a treadmill just to get the feel for it and to take breaks whenever needed. And that might be really considerate in terms of reducing the client's distress during the workout, but it's not going to make them fit. And that's the whole reason that they're there to begin with. I love that idea so much. And I use the word cope and I've not Mm -hmm. thought about it before. And now that I think about it, I don't want to use it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's really getting me thinking about in the work that we do is, I guess it's a challenging thing to think about as a clinician. Do I truly believe that my client can push themselves, can persist through this moment of discomfort? Or am I colluding a little? And I think part of that, I wonder, is that there's lots of thinking in the literature around, you know, window of tolerance, distress, pacing a client relative to what their abilities are, doing an assessment of what capacity they have and sort of pitching it there. And I wonder if sometimes in the OCD space or in any space, really, we might take that a little bit too far. And I know that certainly sort of in the trauma space, you would take it very carefully and whether there's a bit of a bleeding effect over to spaces like OCD where we might apply the same kind of concept where we actually shouldn't be. It's interesting if you adopt the perspective of an anthropologist and you look at what people are doing in the exposure for anxiety world and you realize that there are a couple of distinctly different approaches that begin with different assumptions. The example I'll use is within the the realm of child anxiety and exposure-based treatment protocols that have been studied many, many times, there's two distinct approaches. There's CBT for mixed child anxiety problems. And that approach in America, the researcher Philip Kendall calls it the coping cat. And here it's called cool kids. The basic idea is the first half involves learning coping skills. And you learn skills for controlling or reducing anxiety. And there's breathing skills and relaxation skills and thinking skills. And then the second half involves gradual exposure while practicing skills to manage your anxiety during the exposure. And if you take a step back and you ask, well, why would it be put together that way? It's based on the idea that kids need coping skills during exposure in order for them to be able to handle it. And a different approach in in the child anxiety world, OCD is its own silo. And it's OCD, for whatever reason, it's not mixed in with other types of child anxiety problems. And the prevailing approach, as you know, for OCD in young people is the same as in adults. It's exposure and response prevention. And it begins from a different starting point. There's no coping skills. There's no assumption that kids aren't going to be able to tolerate exposure. And you just jump right in. And the vast majority of the therapy sessions are focused on exposure. And then, of course, the question is, well, where do you jump in? You, you know, we don't want to throw people in the deep end straight away, find a place to start and work up from there. But there's no coping skills model built into it. And a friend of mine, Steve Whiteside, 
who runs a child anxiety clinic at the Mayo Clinic in the U.S., published a meta-analysis a few years ago looking at the average effect size for these two different approaches to child anxiety. And the interesting finding in terms of symptom reduction, ERP for OCD produces an effect size on average that's twice as high as the mixed CBT approach. So not only do you apparently not need to teach kids coping skills, but if you skip past that and go straight to exposure, it just works a lot better. And I think it speaks to the resiliency of children as well in that, as well as, you know, when you're working with adults who potentially have been experiencing it for decades, those neural pathways are well and truly established. That narrative is well and truly on repeat. Whereas when you do jump in with a less established, if I can say it like that, then I guess likely to get better outcomes. Is that kind of what they would attribute that to? Well, yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, you know, adults have often organized their entire life around their anxiety problem for years, and that can be difficult to change that overnight. But then we come back to parental accommodation being (laughs) the big elephant in the room. And actually, uh, again, Steve Whiteside, who I had the pleasure of being a postdoctoral fellow with, we both worked with John Abramowitz back in the day at the Mayo Clinic. Steve has developed a really interesting intervention for anxious young people. And the first part of the intervention is based on findings from his own clinic that the average client only comes to five sessions. And he said, well, rather than, you know, use these 10 to 15 session interventions, if the average client's only coming for five, let's distill the essence of what works into five sessions. And he did, and he's published some outcome data showing good results. But the idea here is to teach parents to be their own child's exposure therapist. And the treatment unfolds by educating the child and the parent about exposure and having the parent observe the therapist run an exposure session. And then the following session, the parent co-leads the exposure with the therapist. And then the session after that, the parent is the exposure therapist and the psychologist is observing and providing feedback. And the idea is to train the parents in the principles of effective exposure and get them to practice it to a certain level of skill and then go home and finish off the exposure with their child. And a parent who's doing exposure therapy for their child is not accommodating. They're doing the opposite. What's the outcome data on that like? I mean, that is a fascinating model. The outcome data I've seen is only from one study and the sample size was relatively small. And I uh, just looked into this the other day, and I haven't seen a follow-up. So I think it's more just sort of a pilot study at this point. But it has very strong face validity, I think. Absolutely fascinating because I work a lot with young people, with children and teenagers, and we often um, think about the work in parallel. I think the work with the child and the work with the parents, so the parents working on reducing the accommodations and then the child in the room learning the skills themselves and doing the exposure. and, And so the idea of just doing a hard and fast taking ourselves out of it, but actually so that you don't become dependent on me, which I think is, is something that happens a lot in this space, is mm-hmm. uh, clients believing that they can only cope with the clinician involved. And yeah, I'm using that word cope again, but um, perhaps sort of correct in this context, that's actually that we can inadvertently become a safety behavior as well. And so it's yeah. interesting, this idea about actually stepping back as a clinician and saying, no, 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 this is the model. This is what has to be done. I'm going to show you and off you go and do it. Yeah, again, it has a lot of face validity. (laughs) And 
I think of a study that my PhD student Johanna Meyer and I did where we um, created a measure of parental accommodation behaviors, but also beliefs about accommodating behaviors. And we were able to show that parents who accommodate more often have more positive beliefs about the benefits of accommodation and had more anxious children as a result. And so if you're getting parents to strip away accommodating behaviors, essentially that's a behavioral experiments for them where they're testing out beliefs that my child won't be able to tolerate their distress unless I accommodate them, that their distress will escalate and then they'll lose control and you know something catastrophic will happen. When it was actually parents who believed that accommodating behaviors were necessary to prevent their child from losing control, who accommodated the most and had the most anxious children. I think that speaks to this notion that in order for me to be okay, I need my child to be okay in this moment of, I guess that's kind of how I often interpret that of if my child's not coping, then am I going to be okay? How am I going to help them through this moment? But again, I'm using the word cope. We're so used to using this word cope. (laughs) (laughs) It's everywhere, I know. And I think that also perhaps some of that underlying belief perpetuates what's going on for some of these families as well. And I think for adults too, in a sense of relying on those safety behaviors of if I don't have the sanitizer in my pocket, or if I don't take 30 photos of the light switch before I leave the house or whatever it is, so I can look back on it later, I'm not going to be able to get through the day. Or it'll just take me five minutes to do these compulsions, and then I can relax and get on with the rest of my day. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you said. And I guess I'm sort of reminded of, for me, what is one of the core principles of what I consider to be optimal exposure, which is you want the client only doing things that increase anxiety. I mean, fundamentally, a safety behavior is an action that decreases anxiety. And I've seen some interesting research that, I mean, you could not have a more simple concept. (laughs) The more in therapy that happens that involves them acting in a way that decreases anxiety equals worse outcomes and vice versa. So on that note, there's a group of researchers at Brown University that got access to hundreds of video recorded therapy sessions, uh, kids with OCD who were going through exposure and response prevention. And they came up with a scale of measuring the anxiety of the child based on what they could see in the video. And they were actually able to measure the rise and fall of the child's anxiety during sessions. And so they coded all of these sessions. And then the outcome variable was their degree of improvement at the end of therapy. And the researchers measured actions that the therapist engaged in would be expected to increase anxiety, like pushing the client to do a more difficult exposure or decrease anxiety, like allowing the client to do an easier exposure or reassuring them that they were going to be okay. And they coded the same behaviors from parents who were in the room. And essentially, the kids who had the best outcomes were kids whose therapy involved lots of anxiety-increasing behaviors from the therapist and parent and very few anxiety-decreasing behaviors. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive-compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. 
all one word. That's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. rules. <laughs>